All right, everyone. I finally kind of figured out some editing on the sound for the pet loss episode. So I hopefully am not messing up your listening experience if you're in the middle of listening to this. I know that my voice was pretty loud and his was pretty quiet and I'm sure that was difficult to manage the volume. So I'm going to take it and delete it and republish it. I really hope that does not mess anybody up, but I hope it'll be a better listening experience. Hello and welcome to Someday We'll All Be Dead, a podcast where we talk about all the things with a social work perspective. I'm your host, Hallie Harris, and I am a hospice social worker. Today, I am proud to present to you an interview that I did with Mr. John Katz, that's J-O-N-K-A-T-Z. He has written almost 30 books, uh, nonfiction, fiction, and even a couple children's books. He has a blog called uh, Bedlam Farm. Dot com and he also has a new podcast and that is called uh, Cats and Wolf on Bedlam Farm. Um, I encourage you, especially if you're dealing with pet loss, which this is what this episode is going to be about, to read the book that we're talking about in this interview, which is called Going Home, Finding Peace When Pets Die. It is so very helpful and it is the book that I use for the pet loss group that I run. Um, we're actually going to probably stop doing the pet loss group so that I will be available for individual sessions, um, to get people past their grief and moving on towards more healthy, uh, healthy living. So I think we really get into it in this conversation. It's all about pet loss and how we look at the perspective of our relationship with animals and how we might be able to have different conversations to help both us and the animals. So please note also that I'm still working on the audio. I finally got a new mic and that's sounding really great. And I tested out on the speakerphone and it sounded really great. And then when I was recording with him, for some reason, his voice is really quiet. So I hope you're able to hear everything. Please let me know um, how that's sounding on the other end. I'll check it out as well once it gets published. Um, But just know that we're moving forward towards progress. So enjoy the interview. Hello. Hi, this is Hallie from Someday We'll Be Dead podcast. Is this Mr. Cat? Well, nice to meet you. Yes, nice to meet you. Thanks so much for doing my podcast. I have to admit, I did some more, you know, online stalking to get prepared since I really only knew you from this one book, and I didn't realize how much more you do. <laughs> yes, I do. I do. I do a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, you are extremely well, I, busy. I just started my own podcast, so I'm into that stuff too. Oh, yeah, I've been listening to that. (laughs) Great, great, great. Well, I'm happy to do it. Yeah, thanks so much. Well, I have you on today. You want a a, uh, grieving support group? Yeah. Excuse me. So I work at a hospice as a social worker, and we have a pretty robust bereavement program, but we didn't have anything specifically addressing pet loss. And, of course, as you know... I'm a hospice volunteer, and I've been pushing for that for a while. (laughs) Well, luckily, I have really supportive managers and staff. And as you know, of course, pet loss is that disenfranchised grief, right? And people people aren't going to come to the grief group and say, I lost my dog when the person next to them lost their spouse. It's just not culturally acceptable at this point. No, and you can't go to your boss and say, I lost my dog, so I need a couple of days off. <laughs> exactly. Luckily, at hospice, you can't. We're very dog-friendly. But... Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so I really encouraged it. And then 
once it got going, one of the first groups I had, someone recommended your book, um, specifically the Going Home, Finding Peace When Pets Die. And I I bought it on audio. I actually bought a hard copy and then I actually went and got the audio so I could listen to it in my car, which was a terrible idea because I was bawling through half of it driving. <laughs> Especially when you sang that song. Oh, my gosh. Oh. Yeah, that was a few years ago, but, yeah, I, I've been through a couple since then. So I, th- I, think it's, um, I think it's very important, you know, to take grieving seriously and also to figure out what the boundaries of it are. You know, I mean, people have a lot of trouble with it for just the reasons you're talking about. It's not really discussed, and, and um, they're afraid to... To, to go into the open with it sometimes, and so they don't quite know how to handle it. But it's become quite a problem. You know, a lot of communities consider it a public health hazard now, and are trying to take it more seriously. You mean grief in general or pet loss? Pet loss. Pet oh, grieving. yeah. People don't. People feel foolish about it. They don't feel entitled to really grieve, as you know. And uh, and the vets are not really trained to handle it either. So, yeah. So they uh, they're they're kind of alone with it, and they. A lot of it's moving on to social media, which I think can be unhealthy sometimes as, as well as healthy. So I think it's a good thing to talk about. Yeah, I think what I, one of the, well, several of the things I loved about your book, but the very first thing that struck me was your story. I believe it was about Orson. And of course, when you pick up a book like this, you don't think of the <clears throat> different types of losses. You know, we kind of all tend to think immediately of, well, my, my pet's old or my pet has an illness. And then we can think about euthanasia, which is, has its own difficulties. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But I think, as I remember, Orson had bit someone and you had to make the choice for kind of safety and his own, you know, well-being. Yeah, Orson was a, was a very damaged dog. He, um, he actually bit three people. The last one of them was a child. Um, and... Uh, he bit him severely and in the neck. And uh, and so I felt, I remember telling myself, I, I, that's not ever going to happen again to me and one of my dogs because, you you know, it's one thing to love a dog, but you can't be hurting other people, especially children. Right. Um, and, of course, I, I was pilloried for this for years online for being a murderer and, a, and, a, and an evil man. But I, I feel very good about the decision. You know, I don't think dogs should be hurting people. They shouldn't be hurting other dogs and they shouldn't be hurting people. But I also felt the need to put some of this in context. You, you know, the role of dogs in our lives has changed so radically in the last 50 years. You know, dogs, 50, there wasn't even dog food until after World War II. That's so crazy. Alone, I know, let alone, it'd be a dog's just ate what people didn't finish. Right. Um, and my, my, my father had a dog, um, and the dog came into the basement in the, in the night, stayed there all night, he never was ever in the house. In the morning, my father let him out. And he ran loose, he terrorized the milkman, he terrorized the mailman, uh, he had sex with other dogs, he, he just he tore into garbage cans. And, uh, you know, it just that was just life with dogs. And he eventually got hit by a truck. And, and my father went and got another dog from the pound for $2. You know, but he didn't, have a, he didn't have a human name, he didn't sleep in bed, he didn't get excellent health care, he didn't have gourmet food, he didn't have treats. Uh, in fact, he never even came in the house. And that was pretty common then. And um, and now, of course, dogs, you know, it's a $32 billion industry and just health care alone for dogs. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and people give them human names. They see them as surrogate children. 
they, they come into the very center of our emotional lives. So this kind of grieving that's going on now is really unheard of until probably 40 or 50 years ago. Um, you know, people just went and got a dog. They didn't adopt a dog, they just got a dog at the pound. And the pound didn't care if you had a tall fence or if you worked or how much money you had, you just got a dog. Right. So the whole, the whole context of, of animals, you know, they're doing a lot of emotional work for people now. You know, our, our society is very disconnected, very angry, very divided, very stressful. And so, so people, uh, you know, they turn more and more to animals for, for comfort and unconditional love and, and connection. So, so there were, in 1963, there were 12, 13 million dogs in America, and now there are 75 million owned dogs. Wow. Um, <laughs> so the whole universe, everything to do with dogs and people has changed. How we see them, what we want of them, how we treat them. You know, the lifespan of dogs has doubled because of, of the health care and all. Um, and, of course, the rescue movement is also new. And also 25 dogs, really, since the birth of the Internet. Mm-hmm. And so we don't just adopt dogs anymore, we rescue them. And, and, and the idea of the abused dog uh, has become much more ingrained in society. Uh, people seeing it, the dogs as, as things that need to be protected from, from humans. So rescuing a dog is a much more intense thing than just going out and getting one. Because uh, when you rescue a dog, there's an emotional charge to that. Right. I don't like to use, I don't like to use the term on my dogs because I don't want to put that into our, I have a rescue dog, but I, he doesn't need to call himself that. <laughs> um, so so I, I, think, I think they're, you know, it's important to understand the emotional intensity of this, you know, on people who, who love dogs. I think they don't, they're not really aware of it. And so they're often ill-equipped to deal with it. Um, and I think that's where you see the grieving that goes on for months, even years, and, and really inhibits people and from living the way they want to live. So I, when I did the going home, I talked to like a couple of hundred therapists and psychologists and vets. And the vets say this is one of their biggest problems, is they don't know how to deal with the enormous amount of, of grief and guilt that people bring to the death of dogs. Mm. Um, I thought one interesting thing I found in researching that book was that the people who treated their dogs very well felt the guiltiest about it, and the people who didn't care didn't feel guilty at all. So, so guilt is a big problem, uh, you know, because people feel, oh my God, I, I put the dog down and uh, I shouldn't have, and I, and I did I do the right thing or didn't I do the right thing? And and, and they they try to chew themselves up, and if, and if it's not curbed. Uh, it can go on for very long, and it can be very deep, as I'm sure you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love when you uh, are mentioning guilt in the book because you you talk about it really serving no purpose, and that animals don't have that emotion; they're not feeling guilty, and so it's really best to just cast away that guilt and just realize that's you did the best you could with what you had, and go on from there. <clears throat> well, I, I, there's several things that I thought would be helpful. To people in this context, and um, some of them have even evolved since the book. You know, the University of Ohio is thinking about um, having a social workers program in the veterinary school where social workers can go and work with veterinary practices to help people deal with the emotional fallout from, from dogs and from, and from dying dogs. The other thing I thought was, you know, I, I really advocate strongly having a real conversation with your vet you know, before you get to this point, when you first meet the vet, uh, 
uh, I, I, I sit down with the vet. I said, look, I need to talk to you. I need to talk about limits. I need to talk about money. I need to talk about um, how we're going to deal with this dog at the end of his life or she, if she gets very sick. You know, how much surgery do I want? How much money do I want? The vets talk about people getting into tremendous financial trouble because they come to measure love by money. Mm-hmm. Well, I love my dog so much I spent $20,000 on him. Um, and if that's not checked, it can really damage people. It can, it can hurt them, even bankrupt them. So these are things here you need to think through at the beginning of the process. Uh, I, I, for example, this is just me. I don't believe in, in extensive surgery uh, on, on dogs. Um, I don't think it's appropriate financially, and I don't think it's appropriate for animals who don't know what's happening to them and can't speak for themselves. So I'm very wary of that. Um, other people feel differently, which is fine. But, but all of these things, so when I come to a point where a dog is very sick, I've been through this twice in the last few years, actually. And just last year, I had a dog died of, uh, of a megasophagus. Mm. And, and so the vet and I have talked about it, and I said, look, I don't want this dog to suffer. Uh, there's only so much money I have to spend and want to spend and can spend. I don't want this dog to be a source of bankruptcy for me or, or heavy, heavy debt. I don't want to subject my dog to you know, endless and expensive surgeries that he or she can't understand and frighten them. So, so these are things I, I think about and talk about in advance. So when, when it's time to deal with it, I'm not just looking at a vet who's saying, well, I can do this and I can do that and we can try this and we can try that and there's this specialist and that specialist. Um, so if you work these things out in advance, um, it, it makes a big difference in terms of dealing with guilt and also the kind of agony of indecision that afflicts people who are not prepared, if this makes any sense for you. Yeah, it's making me think of several things. But first, I I think I want to go down the road of you're making a great point about using perspective on the relationship between animals and people and how very different that is, both with pets and farm animals, which you've talked about and I want to get into, and also pets and or I mean, people and their children and family members, because I don't think you'd be having those conversations with the doctor, like I can only spend so much on my child, but yet we treat them like they're our children. Well, we come to see them. I was on a, I was on a radio program a couple, of, a couple of books ago. There were two other people on the panel, and, and one woman was talking about her cat had died. And she said, you know, my, my cat, and, and he was just like a child. He's a child to me. He's just like a child. And the woman next to her just burst into tears. And we realized, talked to her later, is that she had just lost a son in Iraq. Mm. And she the idea of, of comparing the death of a cat to the death of her son just, just shattered her. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an important perspective to keep in mind. You know, if we, you know, we live in a, we live in a country where there are animals and there are pets. And, and, and in America, you know, in 1945, 90% of the country lived on or near farms and they knew animals. Now it's just the opposite. 90% of America lives in cities on the coast mm-hmm. and the farms sort of emptied out. So pet people don't have animals, and they don't. And if you have an animal on a farm, you can't do that. You can't keep a dog. You can't afford that kind of health care. You can't keep an animal alive—a uh, sick cow or a sick horse or a sick sheep. You, nobody could afford that, and nobody would even think to do it. So these two cultures are broken apart. The pet people kind of have this idea that all animals should be kept alive by any means at all costs. And that's become a big issue, a big focus of the animal rights movement. 
that, you know, you can't ever kill a dog for any reason unless it dies naturally. A lot of vets encourage that for, for, for out of ethical reasons or also maybe even financial reasons. You know, a vet is not trained to say, look, it's time to put the dog down. A vet is trained to say, let's try this and let's try that. And we can do this just like a human doctor. Yeah, I was going to say, that's the same with hospice. <laughs> but the, the difference is that, you know, in hospice, we can speak about what we want. Right. You know, patients can say, I'm in hospice because I'm ready to leave the world and I want help. But a dog can't do that. And so if we're projecting all of our emotions onto them, you know, you know the number one thing that vets told me was how, how much dogs suffer from people who just can't let go of them. Mm-hmm. Surgery after surgery, procedure after procedure. And, and those are the ones who also get into trouble with grieving because they haven't put any boundaries on the relationship. Right. And, and look, I mean, here's the truth. If you love dogs, you're going to see a lot of death because they just don't live long. Mm-hmm. You know, dogs can die of a lot of things. And, and you know, uh, 12, 13 years is a long time for a dog. And most of them die younger than that, and and from a variety of things. And if you're going to have a dog, you're gonna you're gonna to have to deal with with sorrow. And if it's going to be a profound tragedy, I, I really hate it when people say to me, "Oh, I lost my dog. I'm never going to get another one. That was too hard." Mm-hmm. You know, what do they think is going to happen? You know, they're not going to live 50 years. And and so people who love dogs, I think, need to understand them and need to help them leave the world uh, in a comfortable way. And what I do, and as I said this in the book, I go get another dog. You know, I, I wait a decent amount of time. There's nothing more healing. People who get other dogs stop grieving right away. And if you want to feel better, get another dog. Um, and rather than spend years, you know, I see these things on Facebook. This is the 12th anniversary of my dog's death, and I cry every day. I think that person's in trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, that person needs, needs some guidance um, because it's just, it's, there's no perspective to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like... Mean, I don't mean to be cold about it, but, but I think that was a problem I saw again and again. Yeah, I like the idea of thinking about your relationship with boundaries and that it is a time-limited relationship. I mean, we, we certainly encourage people in our group, both bereavement and for pet loss, that there's not necessarily a time limit on grief, but if it's destructive, I mean, you you may be... 10 years later thinking about the dog that you miss or you love, but if it's being destructive or preventing you from being happy and doing other things in your life, then like you said, maybe it's time to um, start looking for professional help. And you're, you're also, I mean, I really love when you're talking about getting a new pet, that it can feel disloyal or that you may still be working through that guilt because you didn't have boundaries or um, they feel like they just can't bear that, that next loss. And like you said, if you go into it knowing this isn't a parrot or an elephant. They're not going to outlive you. So. And also, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of what I call stewardship. I mean, I'm a steward of these dogs. And so it's my job to make decisions on their behalf and ones that, that make them safe and comfortable and healthy. Mm-hmm. And keeping a dog alive beyond all reason or cost is not a gift to the dog. Uh, as vets will say, it's hard to see what people do to dogs they can't let go of. But, but I also think the issue you're raising, which is so important, you know, what's the line between just grieving a dog you love and, and going too far? And, and it's very tricky because grieving is individual. Everybody has to do it in their own way. I mean, nobody, I would never tell anyone how to grieve. You know, it's all different every time. Everybody's different. The dog's different. The environment, there's no one way to do it. But, but I think 
you raised the, the right line when you talk about, uh, you know, grieve for 20 years if you need to. I mean, go, have, you know, do it. But, but when it interferes with your life, if you can't get another dog, if you can't get past it, if you're crying all the time, if you're looking at pictures all the time, if it's making you sad or depressed, you know, years beyond the death, that's just not healthy. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think people need to get they need to get help. And it's and it's different. You know, I wish there was one simple rule for everybody, but you know well from your hospice work that everybody grieves in their own way and should. Yeah, absolutely. But, but I, I think the shrinks always said to me that you know when people can't let go of it, that's when they should start worrying about it. Mm-hmm. You know, six months a year later, your grief is just as intense, and and you can't move past it. That's a warning sign. That's a mental health problem more than a dog problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and again, it's, it's not like there's one formula for everybody. You know, I mean, I, I know people who miss their dogs acutely after decades, but they've moved on. They've got other dogs. They have, you know, other things in their lives. They have other activities. They're, you know, they're leaving full lives. But when, you, when, you, when it's putting a big hole in your life long after the event. Now, I have an odd position myself. I should, and some people don't like it, but... It's been very effective. I don't grieve a great deal for my dogs. I think the dogs are great, nothing but a joy to me. I love having them. They've enriched my life. I write about them. When a dog dies, I wait a couple of months and I get another dog. And, and I celebrate the dog's life. I don't want to mourn it. I don't want to turn having a dog into a misery. Because I love it. Because it's a great gift to me. And I think it's a disservice to the dog if I'm, if I'm turning it into something that shrinks my life or makes me miserable years after the fact and that's not what dogs are about dogs are about love and joy and connection and and i think it's wrong in my case i'm only speaking for me i just won't turn it into a eternal misery you know i love every dog i've had every dog i've had has been a gift to me i'm grateful for it um instead of, of talking about what i miss i talk about what i had you know i've had great dogs that have died and i often think about the fun things we did together, the you know the, the, the connections we had, the places we went, um, and that then that keeps me in a good place. I don't I don't want to be uh, you know crying for a dog that died ten years ago because it's a disservice I think to them. Yeah, I I love me. that. I think that can really be applied to any kind of grief, honestly. If it's a person or a dog or anything, if you can try to let go of the bad memories and have you know just think about celebrating their life and that they were in your life and then being able to have another relationship with a person or animal or what, what have you, then it's going to make your life better and you're honoring the memory. That's a, that's a really important, uh, you put it better than I did. I, I feel like every dog I've had has been such a gift to me. I mean, even Orson, it was a nightmare. Uh, <laughs> but I, I learned a lot from him and, um, and, and I, well, I want to see them as a gift. I don't want to see them as a loss. Uh, because, because you know, what's gonna, we're all gonna, we're all gonna die. Everything we love is gonna die. Every dog is gonna die, and and I don't want to be miserable all the time. I really, <laughs> yeah. I really don't. Especially when I have so much pleasure from them. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, it's, it seems it seems to be almost uh, an insult to them to turn their uh, lives with them into into just nothing but sadness. Although there is sadness too. You know, it's definitely there. Yeah, I think I love that about your book, too, is that you're really encouraging people. If you are uh, an animal lover, why would you deprive yourself of having that joy and also bringing joy to their life? 
Because obviously, if you're loving animals, you're going to give them a good life. And how many animals do we have in shelters that need homes or rescue, you know, even farm animals need to be rescued. And, you know, you're just, you're depriving everything of everyone, everyone of everything when you could just be sharing that love. That's right. We have 12 million dogs in shelters. That's insane. In America, something like that. And staggering number of, uh, so nobody who loves a dog needs to be without one. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's all kinds of ages, sizes, types. I just got one from Arkansas who's just jumped into my lap as we're talking. <laughs> um, and he replaced a dog who died, a puppy who died of, 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 uh, of, of intestinal disorder. Oh. And, and I waited two months and I went and got another dog. And we're having a blast. And, um, <laughs> You know, I'd rather do that. I just my choice. I'd rather do that than sit here and say, "Oh my God, Gus died six months ago, and what am I going to do?" And I miss him, and, and and all that. I don't mean to be contemptuous of grief. I know it's very real, and I know it hurts. But some of it is a choice, and some of it isn't. Mm-hmm. And the, and the part the grieving process will have its way, and you have to go with it. But but suffering is a choice to some extent, and. I've never known anybody who got another dog who's still grieving for a previous one. Yeah, at least not in a destructive way anyway. Right, right. I mean, you can remember them and miss them and and all that. Yeah. But uh, this is also a part of perspective. I mean, mean, you know, I I want to say to people, you know, these are dogs. They're wonderful, but they're not going to live 25 years. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to get one, you know, you have to, (coughs) excuse me, Prepare yourself to, to lose it, and if you prepare yourself, you, the grief is much simpler and much and much more manageable. And I, as you're pointing out, I'm I'm not saying it's wrong to grieve for a dog. I mean, I certainly do it, but I'm not going to have it take away the joy of having them. Right. <clears throat> and I do want to uh, come back to what we talked about a little bit earlier, which is the the difference between pets and animals, that farm animal situation, and now more and more. Um, talking about kind of the split between farms and coastal is people are having backyard chickens. So we're kind of coming into that meeting between farm animals and uh, a livelihood versus rescue animals or just a, a small amount of something that's for fun, like a hobby farm, as opposed to something that lives in your house. And I really love the way that you talk about that too. I mean, you've had experiences, you have um, farm animals now and you've had various roosters and I, Elvis I think it was the bull we had a steer yesterday <laughs> 3,000 pounds yesterday. I love that I love that on my part but it was definitely interesting yeah I love that you're able to talk about those things as you can still have love for those animals and understand the perspective of what that relationship is and where those boundaries are well there's a great schism a bitter schism between pet people and animal people in America right now Mm-hmm. because the pet people uh, want animals to be treated like pets. And the animal people can't do that. Nobody can afford to do that. And when you live on a farm, you get some real hard lessons in life and death. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we had to put a pony down. We have two donkeys. And we had a blind pony that was, came with the farm we bought. And one of the donkeys just, you know, he was blind. So the, the, the donkey just kept trying to run him off the property to protect the other donkey. Mm-hmm was very old. He was 35 years old. Wow, was, that's really old. And the, and the vet came and said, look, you know, he can't last another winter, and you need to be merciful. You need to put him down. So we put him down, and uh, and there was another internet uproar about it. Um, and, and I realized, you know, I, I live on the boundary between pet pe- I have pets and I have farm animals. Mm-hmm. 
So I'm right in the middle of, 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 which is a fascinating place for a writer to be. But I realized how the, the farmers up here, you know, they hide their cows um, because they're terrified of people driving by and calling the police if they lie down. <laughs> um, you know, people, uh, this terrible tension between people always calling the police on farmers, um, you know, because they treat their cows like cows and, and not like puppies. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a huge problem in, in rural America who come to hate the animal rights movement, which is very sad, um, because nobody understands what it's like. You know, a farmer who, who won't put an animal down is going to be out of business in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, it's part, and we've had to put, I've had to shoot lambs, I've had to shoot roosters who were sick, you know, and, and, and you know, a vet, large animal vet, if they come to your house, it's $200. At least. <laughs> At least, as you know, and if, they, if they're treating the animals, it's $400. And so you can't do that all the time. You just can't. And, and also, I don't like to see animals suffer. Mm-hmm. We had a rooster loved who started attacking Maria, my wife. I heard and that on the podcast. Yeah, we chewed up her leg one day, and I, I just got my rifle and went out and said, look, you know, you're not the biggest rooster here, and I just shot him. Yeah. And I was shocked. You know, I'm, I'm not a gun person, and I'm not <laughs> a person who likes to shoot animals, but... You know, some, sometimes rabid raccoons pop up out of the ground and come at you at the dogs. Yeah. And you have, you know, if you call the police, they ask you if you have a gun. Yeah. Um, and so you have to do it. And um, so, so I have, you know, and I, I, I'm glad I put the pony down. He was suffering terribly. So, so I think that's a different. That's a different. Uh, you know, I think these two. You know, as more and more people have pets instead of animals. Uh, I went through a long thing of writing about the New York carriage horses who the animal rights movement was insisting were being abused by hauling carriages in Central Park. And I went and saw the stables, I talked to the owners, I talked to the riders. You know, these are the luckiest horses in the world. Mm-hmm. They're the best. They live long, they have work, they have light work, they have people who care for them. And the animal rights movement is trying to run them out into preserves where they'll never be seen again. So this was what happens when you bring this kind of pet psychology into the animal world. And, and, you know, it's the animals need to work with people. They need to be. That's, those are the ones who survive. I mean, look what dogs have done. I mean, the only species on the earth, with the possible exception of cats, that we're not destroying. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we're treating really well. It's because they've learned how to deal with us. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, my dogs didn't play me like a fiddle, you know. I mean, <laughs> you know how dogs are. And, and the donkeys, too. The donkeys can get me to get a carrot anytime they want by just starting to bring <laughs> So I'm trained. They've trained me very, very well. So, so I, but so I do think that these two cultures need to need to somehow get to talk to each other, because the, the animal culture can teach the pet people a lot, and the pet people, of course, are great forces for treating animals well. But they're not talking to each other. They're very, you know, they're they're very divided. And this, this idea of, of even dogs, you know, dogs have been with people for fourteen thousand years. Mm-hmm. And they've always served people. They protect people. They watch over people. They they keep people company. Um, you know, I don't want to make turn my dogs into children and objects of my need. You know, I want them. You know, the dogs are happiest when they're serving people. Um, and 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 we are in danger, I think, of losing perspective on what what they need. I mean, the biggest cause of death for dogs is overeating right now where people just can't stop giving them treats and feeding them, and, they, and they, it kills them. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, they get overweight and they get unhealthy and they get all kinds of kidney and liver issues. So that's one problem. The other problem is they're just people can't let go of them and subjecting them to endless painful surgeries. Any vet will tell you this. Um, that caused them to suffer greatly. I happen to think the idea of the no-kill shelter is, is, is abuse. I mean, to put a dog in a crate for the rest of his life for years is not humane. It's about the cruelest thing you can do to a dog. Um, so, I mean, we're, you know, these are all things that are good to talk about, but there aren't much, many, many discussions about them because people are, are laying out this scenario for animals that is, is getting emotionalized. You know, there, are, there are now 340,000 dogs in America on Prozac. That's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. Dogs went for 14,000 years without antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication, but we're making them crazy. Right. With separation anxiety and depression. And, and I don't believe in separation anxiety for one minute. I've never had a dog that had it. I've never seen it. Um, and yet people tell me all the time their dogs can't bear to be left behind by them. I've never had a dog that grieved for a dog or a person. I've never seen it. Um, you know, they don't think like us. They, I, you know, they're not like us. They don't have our emotions. So these are, I think these are also things you have to face when you're dealing with grieving. The more you turn them into people, the harder it's going to be. The more you respect them as dogs who will have shorter but meaningful lives, the easier it will be. So I believe, anyway. Yeah. I it's not a popular position. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I think you do bring up great points, and they are things that we really do need to be having more conversations about, Not because it's not an easy conversation, but it's a conversation that needs to be had. I think there need to be more people... Um, you know, remembering Temple Grandin's work, for example, as I'm sure you're familiar with her work with the cattle, it's that she wasn't saying they shouldn't be eaten or used in the way they were being used, but that they could be treated more humanely while they were on the farm. And so she was still respecting that boundary of, I get why these animals are where they are and what they're being used for. Um, what can we do to make it a little bit better for them while we still serve our own purpose? And she also worked so hard at understanding what they're really like. Right. So that enabled people to treat them more humanely and kill them more humanely and understand them in a more humane way. Yeah, understanding um, what the animals' needs like. are. Yeah. Yeah, there's a great book out called, uh, I don't know if you've seen it, called Mama's Last Hug by Peter Van Der Waal, who's a primatologist. And he writes about understanding animals in this way. You, you know, we can only uh, we can only judge we can only really judge their emotions by what we see on the outside of them. We we don't know what they're feeling inside because we can't see it and they can't tell us. So anything we don't see on the outside, we can't really say we know. And yet, if you talk to any dog person, they'll tell you all the time, uh, "Oh, I know what he's feeling. He's jealous because I saw another dog. <laughs> he's lonely because they go to work." You know, these things are just not true. These are these are not emotions dogs have. Uh, you know, these are because they don't speak. We can dump anything we want onto them, right? Because it's what we need. And and, and so I I think it's very important for us to get a realistic sense of what's really going on with them. They're not that complicated. They're not as intelligent as we are. They don't have our full range of human emotions. Uh, you know, this I get in so many fights with people about animal about. Do animals grieve? You know, they talk about the elephants. That, you know, nobody really understands the line between instinct and emotions with animals. And 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 uh, 
I've had dogs die, people die. I've never seen a dog react for more than two days. You know, they don't die from that. They, Katrina dogs, you know, millions of them were rehomed and none of them died of loneliness for New Orleans. You know, they're very adaptable creatures. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we put too much onto them and that causes us to feel too much, if, if that's a way of putting it. Yeah, and then we cause them to have more distress because we're anxious. <laughs> Well, you know, I love to write about separation anxiety, which is another one. Maybe that's why so many dogs are on medication. You know, when I leave the house, I don't say goodbye to the dogs. I don't say anything. When I come into the house, I don't say anything. The dogs don't know the difference between you're going to the pharmacy and you're going to work. They can't tell time. Right. Um, and the bigger deal you make of it, the more nervous they're going to get and the more and the more anxious they're going to get, mm-hmm. the more medicated they're so in all the years that I've had dogs, I've never had a dog with any kind of separation anxiety. You know, they're the crates or, or chewing a bone when I leave. That's what they're doing when I come home. And so, you know, we are responsible in a sense for what we put into their heads. Yeah. And, and I think the more crap we... That's why there's 340,000 of them on Prozac, because we're putting all of our crap into their heads. <laughs> better be careful about it. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I know... into grieving because... The more emotionalizing you do, the more you're going to suffer when they go. Yeah, absolutely. I, I still, I'm just loving that boundary stuff. And I'm going to continue to suggest your book for people as we go through the process of Pet Loss Group. Um, I know we're getting close to running out of time. So I just want to let people know uh, what you're doing and how they can support you. Um, obviously, you have this fairly new podcast, which is great. I think the whole reason that all of your books and your podcasts and your blogs have connected with people is because you are able to write in this very interpersonal and vulnerable way, but also being just honest, you know, like, like our conversation today, you're not afraid to have conversations that are maybe challenging to what we have as an idea in our head. And I love that. Well, thank you. I mean, the main, my main squeeze now, I'm still writing my books, but I love my blog, which is bedlamfarm.com. That's become the centerpiece of my creative life at the moment. I've also become a photographer. I'm taking pictures. And I do hospice work, as you do. And I do therapy work among the elderly with my dogs. I have a red who's a therapy dog. And we're doing a lot of work with, uh, with advanced elderly people. And I'm also supporting uh, refugee children in, in this New York area, helping them out, getting them into school, and raising money for them if they, if they really need things. So... I'm having a good a good life and up in the country and I'm busy. Yeah. What you're talking about, I was very impressed with the questions and your perspective. And I think, you know, you got the right idea, I think, which is just to be open about this. And people, you know, I'm not in the business of telling people what to do. These are personal decisions. I can really only talk about what I do. Mm-hmm. But I think the giving thing has become very, very painful for people. And they really, it's really wonderful that you're addressing it. And I think that. Uh, that I, I think you're, people who are listening to you are very fortunate. Well, thank you so much. A lot of people don't have your perspective. You know? <laughs> well, I do like having difficult conversations, so I guess that's a bonus for me. Well, feel free to call me anytime. I'd be happy to talk to you anytime you'd like. Yeah, I'd love to uh, get you back on someday when you have another free moment to talk a little bit more about kind of more the refugee work and how you're handling the political situation and the the little goods, as you put it. I love that too. So let's talk about that another time. The small acts of great kindness. Yes, so great. (laughs) Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed talking with you. Yes, I enjoyed talking with you too. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care.
All right. That was my interview with John Katz. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I do. I'm really looking forward to having him back on the podcast. He's got some really great perspectives on a lot of other things, both relating to animals and the world around us and what we can do to help ourselves get through life with a little less stress. Since we ran out of time with our talk with John, I just wanted to go over a few things of examples that he talked about in the book about how to be supportive when someone that you know has lost a pet. So he discusses active listening. And honestly, this could be really, this would be great to do with anyone if they lost a pet or a person. This, These kind of steps of supporting someone that's grieving, these are all great. Active listening is really, uh, just like Brene Brown gives the example between sympathy and empathy, Active listening is when you're just sitting there listening to the other person. You're not trying to think about what you're going to say next. Um, Say that you're sorry. You know, a lot of people ask me, what can I say to someone that's hurting or grieving? I don't know what to say or what should I write in this card? Just say, I'm sorry that this is happening to you or I'm sorry that you're hurting or I'm here for you. You don't have to have the answer. It's going to hurt. It's going to suck no matter what it is, no matter how it happened. Grief is hard. And if you're just able to say, I'm sorry and I'm here, that can make all the difference. For animals, don't trivialize the experience. Don't say things like, it's just a dog or your dog had a better life than most people. It doesn't really matter what their life was like. In that moment, they're hurting and nothing that's going to be trivializing it. It's going to help. Um, and in the same vein with people as well, you don't want to say when I had a loss or, Oh, I know exactly how you feel because my experience was this. Everyone grieves differently. Everyone had their own relationship. Even if we lost the same person or the same pet, you each had your own special relationship with that individual or that pet. So that's not really helpful. So try to go back to the act of listening and saying that you're sorry and you'll be there. Be supportive. Normalize the feelings, especially with pet loss. People kind of, when they do finally open up about it, if they're feeling safe enough to open up, they're in a very vulnerable position and they already think that people think that they're crazy for grieving their pet. So just normalize that grieving is okay. It's okay to feel sad. And then like we talked about in the podcast, if grieving becomes destructive, if it goes on and on and on for six months, a year, several years, one of the things I talk about in my pet loss group is that oftentimes because we do put so much on our animals, those animals can be tied up in other relationships and, uh, it can mean a lot more. You know, when, when my dog died, when I was 13, I cried for a week. And the reason I cried for a week is because that dog also represented my dad who had passed several years earlier. And I really hadn't grieved for him at that time. I know that my mom is going to have a similar issue when her dog um, passes away eventually. Uh, That dog was something that she got from my grandmother when she was down there caring for her. And so when that dog dies, it's not just going to be the dog. It's tied up in other things. So If you find yourself excessively grieving, and I use that word cautiously, uh, maybe think, try to think to yourself about 
is it really the animal or is it tied up in something else? Maybe a relationship or a different loss that you didn't process or that is still hurting you. And then secondly, if it is continuing on, you can offer uh, to that person that they may want to seek some kind of professional help to get them through that time. So I just want to give you those suggestions. And of course, if you have any other questions or suggestions of your own, um, feel free to contact us. If you feel free to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast so more people know about it, please do that. We definitely appreciate it. Um, you can always email us at contact at willallbedeadpodcast.com. We'd love to hear any feedback or more questions that you have for John. And you can also find us on Twitter at SomedayDeadPC. I hope that you're all able to listen to this, have a little bit more perspective, and be able to enjoy the animals in your life even more with maybe a better or more healthy understanding of the time-limited relationships that we have and how we can thrive from those rather than destroy ourselves with grief. Thanks so much for listening and take care of yourselves. Someday we'll all be dead.